Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you today. Welcome our visitors. If you're just uh, joining us today, I encourage you to come to the Welcome Center and grab some coffee, some water, and give us a chance to get to know you better and welcome you to this incredible spiritual community. Also, a special thank you to Joel and all the people that organized the Mission Action Group here, that organized the Bed Build yesterday. It's just wonderful to see all of the generations in this church coming together to literally practice what we're preaching. When we talk about Jesus coming into this world to make all things right, it's a simple thing that 60 beds were made yesterday for children that otherwise would not be able to have them. And I just think it's a powerful thing. So we praise God for that. Thank all of you that participated in that. And thank all of you, period, because in your contribution and the support that you do this church, it it went to make that happen. And and it's a fitting kind of backdrop to what we're talking about here. This is the second week on this new series that we're doing here for this Easter season. A reminder, Easter is a season and not just a day where we focus for the next several weeks on the significance of the resurrection. We're asking this question, so what? He was raised from the dead. We know that's going to change everything at the end of the time, but what about right here and right now? What what is the impact and what are the implications for our lives day in and day out because of the resurrection of Jesus? And last week and this week and again next week, we're focusing on the first gospel sermon that was ever preached after the resurrection of Jesus. You read the beginning of that last week. We're going to pick it up if you have your Bibles and your devices in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to overlap the last two verses that we finished with last week to pick it up in verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He quotes David in the Old Testament and then picks it up in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know how in all of our lives, sometimes we have unwanted intrusions that kind of pop into our lives. We have these off-putting moments where people kind of pop in and they intrude upon us or a situation intrudes upon us. Often it's something like this. Somebody's knocking on your door, selling you something or offering you to sign up for something that you don't want. Sometimes it happens on our phones. You know, my cell provider will say, scam likely, <laughs> it'll pop up. And so you get those spam calls or texts or emails, whatever the case may be, and it's annoying and it's frustrating. We also know sometimes the unwanted intrusions in our lives are more serious. 
maybe a circumstance or a situation that comes into our lives and it creates difficulty or suffering or pain. I was thinking about this and I realized, did you know sometimes the intrusions in our lives are actually welcome surprises? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes whether it's someone who comes and interrupts your schedule or the, the plans that you had for the day or that part of your life, maybe, maybe it's a circumstance or situation that interrupts it, but sometimes those interruptions are actually welcome and blessed surprises for us. As I often do, I was kind of taken back to the glory years of my Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and I was thinking about this coach in particular. His name is Jimmy Johnson. Maybe you've seen him broadcasting now. He's now a broadcaster for Fox News, but Fox News, for Fox Sports. But he, uh, he was responsible directly for two Super Bowls. I would argue he pretty much did the third one too, but the, the way he led. Uh, but he's known as a guy that is meticulous in his de detail. He doesn't miss almost anything. And so you can imagine how hard it was for them to prepare to surprise him with an intruder a couple years ago. They were in the middle of the national broadcast during the playoff season, and a guy named David Baker is an enormous man, and I don't know how they hit him, but somehow they brought him in, and they interrupted in the middle of the show to invite Jimmy Johnson to be the newest inductee into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. David Baker, the big guy in the back, is or at least was at that time, the president and CEO of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I love it because this old, tough, hardened coach is crying on the set because this intruder comes in and gives him, in this case, a pretty welcome surprise. And the reason I wanted some image for us to think about the intruder that turns out to be a blessing is because I've never thought about what we're talking about here in this way before, but earlier this week I was looking at different commentaries and thinking about the text and wrestling with it, and there was one writer uh, that said this. They said, did you realize this, that Easter itself it was actually an intruder for them? Ever thought about that? The resurrection itself was an intruder that broke into the middle of human history, and it was an intruder not just to the secular and political world around them. It was an intruder to the religious people too. To think about this way, no one expected a crucified Messiah. Messiah, that word for, for God's predicted and promised king that would come and fix the brokenness of the world. They were looking forward to that for centuries, but nobody thought this guy would die. They thought the king would come and conquer Rome and set things right physically in their eyes first, and then he could go on and do whatever he's doing. But, but nobody thought that they would die. Also important to recognize, we talk in great details about this on Wednesday night, but for the Jewish mindset in the first century, they, they had a concept of resurrection, but there was no concept that one guy would begin that resurrection in the middle of human history. Uh, the Jewish mindset was at the end of time, all of God's people would be resurrected. That is true, but they didn't know, as the Bible said, the first fruits of that resurrection would happen in the middle of human history in the person of this one man, Jesus. It wasn't on their radar screen. Don't pick on them and say, well, he told them three times that he was going to die and rise. If you go back, especially in the book of Mark, it says they had no idea what he meant by resurrection of him. They didn't get it. There was no concept. So think about it. Everything changed just like that moment with Jimmy Johnson. David Baker walks into the middle of the studio and interrupts it. Everything in his life is different after that moment. Everything in human history 
changes after the moment of resurrection. And I want to think about a little bit more today, what impact does that make in our everyday lives? Part of this is a review of what we talked about last week. So let's start there and just think about this. God invites us through the resurrection into a great story. We said this last week. God invites us into a cosmically great story. We used this language last week when we said all of our lives are like are momentary bits and fragments, but they find their significance and purpose in, in a great larger story, what the philosophers call a meta-narrative, if that wants, if you, if you like big words. That the idea of a grand story that makes sense of all the small things in our lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection in particular gives sense and order to our lives, and he invites us into this great story. He invites us into lives that are headed somewhere with a purpose and a goal, and he invites us into lives that actually matter and make a difference in the long run. Here's a way to think about this sermon that we're looking at over the course of these three weeks, and then we'll do some other things in the book of Acts after that. When Peter gets up and gives that first resurrection sermon ever, I think he gives us a model for doing the very thing we talked about last time. Our our role is to be witnesses and testify to the resurrection of Jesus, to the new life in Jesus. How do we do that? Now, at the risk of sounding really preachery, I'm going to say, here's a way to think about a short story version of telling the story of Jesus in a way that is personal to you. And I do it with four C's, all right? So follow me on this. Last week, we got two of them, and then we'll get two more this week. So last week, we talked about credibility, and we talked about the cross and the tomb. So, so just a, a review on that. I really want to, to refocus on that first one. Remember, in verse 22 of this text, Peter said... Jesus was a man accredited by God to you. His life has credibility. You can bank on this guy. Here's the thing. Everybody bases their life on someone or something. The only question is, is what your foundation of your life is. Is it credible or not? He says, Jesus is credible. I said it last week. Let's, Let's sink into this one more time. I don't want to rush past this. This is true for anybody who's just checking Jesus out for the first time, or if you've been following Jesus for years, I encourage you to ask this question, what makes Jesus credible to you? If you don't know him yet, I encourage you to wrestle with this and kick the tires and see if he doesn't kind of rise to the occasion on this. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this, I mentioned this last week, but here's a practice that I would suggest. You can do it I think at different stages of your life, but especially if you are new and you're checking out the faith, I encourage you to just start reading the Gospels. Pick a Gospel and start reading the Gospels. Here's the thing Jesus said, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. So take him up on that. You may not even believe in him, but ask. Say, if you're real, would you show up in these stories and show your credibility to me? The first time I learned about that, years ago, a lady named Rebecca Pippert who worked in churches and did things in places that often involved campus ministries as well, she talked about this as a practice. In fact, hers was a little more specific. This is what she would say. She would say, I encourage you to read the Gospels and look for something that resonates with you as true. Something will strike you as true. And then she says, as soon as you see that, obey it right away and see what happens. I think that's an interesting practice. And she tells the story of a PhD student named Sue. Sue had first started coming to their church and coming to their campus ministry because her friend Larry had given his life to Christ recently. She was an agnostic. She was a 
you know, person that was basically a little bit spiritual, but didn't buy into the God story, didn't buy into the Jesus story. But she saw something in the life of Larry who was so transformed, it drew her to ask the question, is there something here? And he invited her to come to the campus ministry and to the church, and she started interacting. And she saw Larry's life change. She heard stories about this guy, Jesus, and he was intriguing to her. And then she saw not a perfect group of people, but like this church, she saw people who loved each other in an uncommon way. And all of that drew her in some ways. But she came up to Rebecca and said, here's the thing. I can't believe it yet. I don't get it. I don't believe Jesus is like the Son of God yet or anything like that, but I, I, I can't deny something that's happened with Larry and all this kind of stuff. She said, what would you suggest that I do? She said, please don't tell me to be baptized and come to Christ and it'll all work out. Tell me something. And Rebecca suggested what I said last week. She said, start reading just a little bit of the Gospels every day, and if something resonates with you as true, obey it. And she called it her pagan quiet times. <laughs> so she would get up and she'd read a little chunk of scripture and she would ask, God, you know, I don't know if you're even real. I don't know if I'm talking to the wall here, but if you're real, would you confirm this in some way? She walked into the library one day and she was working on her um, PhD thesis. And in her university, the place that she was, they would assign to people a desk, like a little cubicle, for you to have all your books and you don't have to keep checking it out and all that kind of stuff. You'd have all your material in this one place. And she came in and she first sat down to start working on her thesis and this other student came up and started yelling at her. And he said, they've screwed up my assignment. I need a desk. I need it faster than you do. I need it more than you do. I'm taking yours. <laughs> and she's like, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm taking your desk. And she's like, no. And she's yelling back and they're yelling and all that stuff. Then she remembered what she had read that morning. That morning she was reading the Sermon on the Mount. She read Matthew 5 verse 40 that says, if someone takes your shirt, give them your coat too. And she's like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> and she's like, uh, okay, you can have it. And he's like yelling or whatever, like, hold on, no, that's not right. And then they start, he starts yelling more, and so somebody sees what's going on, they take her, he goes all the way to the dean. And they're talking to the dean, the dean looks at Sue, and he says, Sue, what do you think? You had it first, what do you think? She said, let him have it. Now inside she's going, this is really annoying and frustrating to me, but let him have it. She walks out of the door, and this guy looks at her and says, why in the world would you just kind of give up and let me have the desk? She said, you will not believe me if I told you. But somebody told me to read this Jesus guy, and I read this stuff, and he said this thing, if somebody takes something, you just give it to him. And she said, I don't know, but I think what he's trying to say is that if you trust me, I'm going to give you a whole lot more than a desk. And she said, as I walked away, something inside of me, she said, I know it's the craziest verse in the world, but something inside of me said, this guy is right and true. And that's her story that people would testify. What a weird thing. Her testimony is about a desk in a library. But she will tell you that story today. It's something that makes Jesus credible to her. What is it for you? Work on that. We talked about it last week, but I really want to hit that one hard. 
We also talk about the second C. What the cross, and yeah, I got to sneak the tomb in there, right? So the cross on the tomb, the center of the Christian story is that God is not going to kind of bypass and overlook the brokenness in the world and inside of us, and you know better too. We can't just ignore that stuff. He said, I'm going to take all of the brokenness in all of the world, including you, and I'm going to take it into myself. The death of Jesus, the cross, nails the brokenness of the world to death. But here's the great news of this whole season and the whole Christian story. Dead things in the hands of God don't stay dead. We offer each individual heart and the world the hope of resurrection. That's the beginning and the heart of the story. And then we come to what's focused on here in the text today. And what we find is this story leads to transformation for these people. Their lives are changed and transformed. One thing you'll see in story after story after story in the book of Acts. It's not just information that's thrown out there. They are transformed by the story of the credible king of Jesus and the resurrection empty tomb. People's lives are changed. Now here's the thing. Our lives will not be changed. We won't answer the so what question if all we do is take in good information. What transformed them is they got information that actually led to a decision in their lives. And that's the third C. I I call it commitment. So you've you've got the credibility of Jesus, you've got the cross and the tomb, and then they make a commitment. And I want to think about this. They make a commitment to two things about the identity of Jesus. Just for a moment, I want to talk to folks that grew up in a Church of Christ heritage like I did. If you didn't, just ignore me for a moment. I want you to think about this. I just want to say it this way. The most important verse in Acts chapter 2 is not verse 38. Let me just say this, okay? I'm not picking on 38. It's a powerful verse. But the most important verse in Acts chapter 2 is not Acts 2.38. If you don't know what I'm talking about, praise God, just ignore it. But here's what you need to know. The most important verse in Acts chapter 2 is verse 36. And if you get verse 36, you'll get 38 and everything else. This is what Peter says at the culmination of his testimony about the resurrection of Christ. He said, let all of Israel, and I would say all of the world, be assured of this. He said that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, we're all implicated in that, both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ, based on your translation. These two identity markers of Jesus are the most important things. If we get Christ, Jesus as Messiah, and we get Jesus as Lord, it transforms everything. I want to think about it in reverse order. First of all, what does it mean to say Jesus is the Christ? He is the Messiah. I I kind of translate it this way. He is the promised rescuer of the broken world. And all throughout the Old Testament history, he said there's going to be a rescuer coming. There's going to be an anointed one, an appointed one. That's what Christ or Messiah means. An anointed and appointed rescuer of the world. And one of the first things we say when we come to Jesus or we reaffirm our faith in Jesus is that we need a rescuer. And we live in a world sometimes we act like that's not true and we, we can work really hard and we can pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps or whatever the case may be. But you look around in the world and you look closely in your heart and you know as well as I do, we need rescuing. Here's a way to think about it. I love the way one writer talked about it. He said, sometimes you're driving somewhere and you realize you're going the wrong way and all you need to do to get back on track is turn. You just turn left or turn right, right? And you can kind of 
kind of get going the right way. But he said, sometimes you find yourself in a situation, imagine you're skiing and you're going downhill and you're reckless and you're out of control and you're headed for a cliff. In a moment like that, gently turning right or left will not save you. Do you understand this? There are moments like in a moment like that, what you need is a rescuer to stand in the way and redirect you. Does that make sense? I think about when we had uh, just moved to uh, where I was going to law school <clears throat> at UVA. Please don't hiss. Uh, it was a different school, I understand, but there was a law school there. And we went there, and, and we'd been there for a little while, and, and it snowed. I mean, just blankets of snow. And here's something. There's a little verse. I should remember where it is, but there's a little verse tucked in the book of Job that says something like this. It says, God makes it snow to stop people in their work. I think that's pretty cool, and I take it seriously. I really do this. So anytime it snows, I take it as a command of God to go play in some way. <laughs> so I remember a few years ago, it snowed a lot in Tennessee, and it was like 11.30 at night. It was just dumping down. I woke the kids up, and we went out and played. <laughs> so this time, it was snowed. It was just um, before we, we had even Christine. So it was a long time ago. It was me and Melanie, and, and my best friend there was a guy named Andy. He was a mechanic. So picture this guy who looks like a linebacker. I mean, he's just solid rock of a dude. And we went out to the top of this big old hill out at a community college. And we worked really hard, me and Andy, to kind of get the path down, right? Because when you first try to kind of sled down the thing, it's not moving, right? So we worked it, and we got it right. And then all of a sudden, Melanie went to go down this thing that we had just really worked hard to get slick. And she's going, I'm about halfway up, Andy's all the way down at the bottom, and she takes off like Christmas vacation, man. It's just cooking, you know what I'm talking about? She's flying down there. We realize all of a sudden she's going, she is not stopping. And down at the bottom is this enormous concrete like water ditch. And I'm like, I'm freaking out, I'm like, oh my gosh, my, we'd only been married a few years. I'm like, uh, my wife's about to die. And my buddy Andy stepped up in front of her in all of his linebackerness and stopped her, <laughs> saved her from huge calamity. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Listen to me. Jesus says, when we are living our lives in their own directions, our own way, on our own steam, we're not just driving and we just kind of need to redirect left or right. We are hurtling down to the ditch and we need a rescuer, a Christ, a Messiah who will step in and take it for us so that we can get redirected the way we're supposed to go. Does that make sense? When we come to Jesus, we make a commitment. We cannot save our own lives. We need you. But the second one, here's the thing. Often, I think we're really excited to name Jesus as Messiah, Rescuer, and Christ. It's a little bit harder to confess him as Lord. What does it mean to say Jesus as Lord? I was thinking about this, and this word, we hear about it in church all the time, but we don't really use that word very much anymore. If you're in England, they have a house of lords, and they have a whole history about that, and it has significance. I was trying to think about it. Is there any realm of our lives where we actually use this word in a meaningful way? And I thought, there is one. In fact, a lot of you are experiencing this. Anybody here rent your house or your apartment? Does anybody rent that? If you rent your house, or if you are someone that rents out to other people, but if you rent your house, you have someone in your life that connects with that word. What do we call them? Landlords. Now, if you think about it, the image really works. Because here's the thing. If you rent an apartment, you sign the lease, and you go in there. By the way, part of the analogy doesn't work because he paid for it, okay? So somebody paid for it, but you're still renting this place, and you go in. The thing is, 
when you come in, you make it your own, don't you? It's your couch and your stuff that you put on the walls and your stuff cooked. It's got your look. It's got your feel. It's got your smell. I mean, it's your place, right? And yet, here's the thing. If something huge happens and blows up or breaks or whatever, what do you do? Do you fix it? No, what do you do? You call the landlord and they come and fix it. Here's the other thing. If you're living there and you realize, hey, I want to go somewhere else and I need some money, can you go out and sell your place? If you're renting the place, your apartment? No. Why? Because the landlord owns it. Now, once you get that, I'm like, wow, this word still works. What does it mean when we come and say, as you've heard us say the last several weeks, I love taking that confession out of Romans 10, not just the one out of Matthew, to be able to say with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. What do we mean when we say that? It means we're transferring the title of our life over to him. Now, the cool thing is he gives your life back to you and you get to decorate it your way with your personality and your feel. And isn't that glorious? But he is the one that owns it. And that means if you blow it up, you don't have to fix it. You invite him in and he will fix it again. And you don't get to use your life in whatever way you want because you don't own it anymore. Isn't that powerful? Now, here's the beautiful thing about that, too, when you get this image. That's why Paul talked about the body of Christ. And again, we saw it yesterday, the bed build. Everybody had different jobs and did it in different ways. Some people super task-oriented, like my wife, and she knocked it all out. I'm doing all that stuff, and I'm a clown. And I'm trying to connect with people and have fun, too, while we're doing it. Everybody is it different ways, right? And in the body of Christ... Your following of Jesus doesn't look like your following of Jesus or anybody else. You make it your own, but it's all his. Isn't that powerful? And the invitation, maybe it's for the first time, or maybe this is a renewal and recommitment in this Easter season to say, Jesus, I want to own it with all of my heart. You are the Lord of my life. I remember teaching a Bible class one time. This guy came up to me after, and he had talked for months you ever talk to somebody, you're trying to help them out, and you keep missing, you know, like you think you share something, it doesn't work, doesn't help them, whatever, and I couldn't figure it out, and all of a sudden, something hit me, I'm talking to this guy, and I'm telling you, this doesn't happen to me often, I didn't hear some audible voice, but I had this sense inside of me, I think from the Spirit, to ask him a question that seemed really strange to ask a guy who grew up in church, went to a Christian college, and then now was in a Bible class. But it hit me to ask him this question. And I was like, Sam, that's not his name. I just feel like I need to ask you, have you ever made Jesus the Lord of your life? Like, I know you've done the church thing, but have you ever said, Jesus, I'm just turning my life over to you? And he stepped back for a second. He said, you know, I haven't. He's done the Christian thing his whole life. But he said, I've never really owned Jesus as Lord. And he said, to be honest, when you say it that way, it scares the heck out of me. Because he said, I'm a control freak. <laughs> and I like to do things my way. And his life was transformed by that simple invitation to say, Jesus, I'm turning the title over to you. These lives were changed this day because they said, Jesus, you're not just my rescuer. You're my Lord. And you get to define the way my life is going to be used from here on out. And the last piece of this story, what you see is that they mark their transformation with action. They mark the transformation with action. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is you couldn't just ignore him. Jesus came, and when the word of God came in through Jesus, people either wanted to worship him or they wanted to violently oppose him. <laughs> there wasn't a casual like we do today. Well, Jesus is pretty cool. No. 
Love the image one writer puts when he said, the Word of God through Jesus came like a raindrop on an angled roof. It's got to go one way or another. And that's what happens here. They come to a place where they have to make some step into action. And that's where I get the the last little C here. Call. It goes all the way back to verse 21. Where Peter is quoting the book of Joel and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'll be honest with you, when I grew up, Everybody at churches all around me would use this verse all the time when somebody was coming to Christ. And me, being a church of Christ, never used that one because we, we only used verse 38. <laughs> right? So I'm going to tell you, you've got to repent and be baptized, which I believe that. That's great. But I love the picture of this that I got from my friend Milton Jones. He said, what if we all use the same language? Here's a great unifying way to say this. This is the invitation from the first sermon that was ever preached. Call on the name of the Lord. But what if we did it this way? Here's our invitation. Call on the name of the Lord with your head, heart, and your hands. Comprehensively. It's just like the love Jesus said. You you love God with everything. When you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you commit with everything you are. Start with your mind. Some of you aren't ready to make the full commitment, but you start by checking Jesus out with your mind. That's a great place to start. Call on the name of the Lord with your mind. Bring your mind to Him. By the way, call on the name of the Lord with your heart. Did you know that's a great thing? Again, I've, I've seen people who grew up in church who never have said and owned the words, Jesus, you're my Lord. They made their baptismal confession, but they never said, I'm signing my life over to you, even though that's what baptism means. Sinner's prayer is a great prayer. Just don't stop there. It's a great prayer. Own it. And, and this is what repentance is. It's turning around. It's saying, God, stop me and turn me back onto the right path. We do that with all of our being in our heart. And yes... This moment we've seen the last several weeks, there is something about the visible prayer. This is not a work when we come to the baptismal waters. It's not a work. It is a prayer of faith. It just happens to be with your whole body. I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm calling on the name of the Lord with my entire body to say, God, I can't do this. I surrender to you. Would you bury me and bring me back to life again? That's the invitation. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And I think that's a way we can tell the story and we can relive the story, even if you've been following with Jesus for a long time. Are you willing to recommit again, mind, heart, and my whole being, that Jesus, you're my rescuer and you're my Lord? What happens when we do that is that we become the answer to the so what question. God uses our lives to make a difference in the lives of others. I end with this. One of my my favorite pictures of kind of a modern-day example of what happened with 3,000 people there. There's a girl, we'll call her Rachel, that's not her name. But she was a freshman when I first met her. Wasn't a Christian, had done the kind of beginning college experience that a lot of people have. I'm going to try other ways to be fulfilled and enjoy my life and all the kind of stuff. And she came into our Bible class like you were just in a few minutes ago. She came in and sat down, and a sign-up sheet went around the room, and she just signed her name. She thought she was (laughs) signing up, just here's my name and email, just kind of know who I am. Didn't know really anybody or anything like that, signed it up. What she didn't realize is she signed up for the retreat. (laughs) And so the day before that our our, uh, spring retreat was coming, um, our admin lady that worked in our campus ministry called her up and said, hey, you're still coming on the retreat. She's like, what retreat? And she told her about it. She's like, oh, no, I, I didn't mean to sign up for that. Well, we had a wonderful admin lady. She said, well, come on. You got nothing else to do. Let's just come on. And so strangely enough, Rachel came. She didn't know anybody. I mean, she'd been interacting a little bit, but she didn't really know anybody. This is her first real step out. And she goes on this retreat. And I'll tell you, she experienced Jesus 
in the gospel for the first time. It was just beginning. She was just kicking the tires, but she experienced it. And she saw something in the community of people like you. Again, it wasn't perfect, but there was something different. She was tugged by that, and she stopped, kept coming and kept hanging out. I got an email from her almost exactly a year later as we're getting ready for the next retreat. And she said, Dean, what I'd like to do is when we go on the retreat this year, I want to be baptized on the anniversary of me going on this experience. It was so incredible when she told her story and what led her to that moment. And what I want to share with you has moved me so often. When I think about baptism, I think about as a sophomore in college, this is what Rachel wrote as vows she was making to God. She wrote a poem of her vows to God as she received the vows back from God that he was going to save her life. Let's share these with you. It's so powerful. Again, a sophomore in college wrote this. Standing alone, she started out kind of wandering alone, standing alone amidst chaos, a misty realm of tears, gently dried by my Savior, no longer standing alone with my fears. She had a community then. I don't stand alone. His love given to me, penned in his love letter, casting illumination so that I can see. Timeless love, transcending all, breathing life. Pick up that spirit language into my soul. To my knees I fall. Listen to her understanding the gospel already. We talked about the big story. A master plan designed for me. Before my birth, he paid my massive fee. So I could travel with him, united with his promise. One with his fate. What a beautiful understanding of baptism. We are united with Christ. So where he goes, we go. Placing upon my soul a kiss. Listen to this last stanza. It's so powerful about what this coming to Christ thing is all about. Giving existence a new verse. She didn't like the song that her life had been before, so God writes a new verse for her. Isn't that awesome? An orchestra of beauty revealed to me, offering my heart harmony. And I love this last line. A different script for my destiny. She tried writing her own story of her life, but she just assumed, I'm going to step into the the story that ends in resurrection. That's the one I want to do. Isn't that glorious? And that's our invitation that we let God write the script of our lives. We surrender him as Christ and Lord and he will write a far better story than you and I ever could individually and for this church. And so Father, that's our prayer for you to write in our lives the story that you intend for us. And we will fail and we will head off the cliff. Thank you so much, Jesus, for stepping in the way and redirecting the course of our lives. We surrender to you again. You are Messiah. You are Christ. You are the rescuer of our lives and this broken world. And we want to name you again. You are the Lord of our lives. You are the master. You're king. The title is yours. Not just to our individual hearts. This church is yours, Lord Jesus. Do with us what you will. We pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ.